Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Tim... Lund. Everybody should know him as Tech Tim. If you've been around the off-road industry for any bit of time, he uh, I first met him. He was working for ARB. He's announced at We Rock Events and KOH. He uh, had his own shop, um, Wild West Off-Road. He's been a tech editor for a number of different magazines, and he now resides at Northridge. So, Tim, thank you so much for coming on board and discussing your life and history with us. Thank you for having me on. It's a big honor, especially to be included with some of the names that you have already done interviews with. Well, you deserve to be in there, so don't uh, don't discount yourself. So, let's get started right off with, uh, where were you born and raised? Uh, I am a Pacific Northwest boy, 100%. I was born in Seattle and... Uh, lived in Seattle up until about the fifth grade and then moved over to the peninsula. So across the water from Seattle into okay. the Paulsbo Kitsap area. Okay. So when you were, you said about fifth grade, you moved over there. That's, that's a little bit more rural. Definitely more rural. Yeah. And, uh, what was it like first growing up in the, the city up until fifth grade or thereabouts, and then over to the rural area. Was it was it a big change? Um, in some ways, yes. Some ways, no. Um, you know, in the city, it was, you walked to school. It was only maybe five blocks away, six city blocks away. And you during the summer, my older brother and older sister and I would walk to the theater or down to the corner store to grab stuff. You had the boys club a few blocks away where we could go play ball or jump on a trampoline, whatever. So it was, you know, you, you have all the conveniences of city, right? But my parents like to camp. And so we camp all the time and whether it was hunting camp or uh, just out camping for the sake of it, 
And so we were always out in the woods. And when we moved to the country, it was just, it was awesome. I mean, we, we moved to a farm that was probably, I don't know, 40 acres, maybe a little bit bigger now. And, and we were surrounded by woods. Our nearest neighbor was mm, probably 10 acres, 20 acres through the woods on either side of us. Across the road from us, we had couple thousand acres that were just wooded and behind us was I don't know how many acres hundreds of acres that were wooded nice and so it was it was it was really cool I mean, we had an old barn hay barn to go climb in and it was farm life and then you rode a you rode a school bus to school and if you wanted to go to town if you needed something it was you know jump on your bicycle and ride four miles away um, to get to town and same with friends. If you wanted to go see a friend, your friends were a couple miles away. So put lots of time on bicycles back then. Right. And you're of the age where you start off with like almost a cruiser bike. I mean, they had stingrays, but they weren't, they weren't like BMX style stingrays, at least at my age. Yeah. So my older brother had a stingray, you know, the banana seat bike, whatever you want to call it. Yep. And I remember that was stolen when we were living in Seattle. My grandfather used to find bikes at garage sales and, and disc, discount stores, used bikes. And then he would kind of fix them up for us. And so we always had these bikes that were just, I don't know, conglomeration of parts. At one point in time, I had a bicycle with a funky seat on it. And it wasn't until later that I found out that was a unicycle seat, you know, one of those curved seats. <laughs> okay. And so it was just, it was just interesting. And to me, it was always, okay, let's take it apart and put something back together and change it around. So yeah, the BMX was just starting to come on big time when I was, well, when we moved out to the peninsula, because I remember I was really wanting, you know, like the traditional mongoose type BMX bike. Right. And my parents got me for Christmas this beautiful bike. It was right out of one of the Monkey Ward or Sears catalogs. It, it, it's definitely a bike that they styled to make look like a motorcycle. You know, it had a big motorcycle style seat, had plastic fenders front and rear, a fake plastic fuel tank, but it was a bicycle. And, you know, of course, it weighed with all the extra gear on it. The dang <laughs> thing weighed, I don't know how heavy it was. And, Within a couple of weeks, I had it stripped right down to the basics and put a small seat on it. So it kind of looked like a BMX bike. And my parents were so <laughs> disappointed. <laughs> yeah, because they spent a lot of money. They, they were going to give me a, they wouldn't let me have a motorcycle, but you know, they got me this bicycle. that looks like a motorcycle. And I guess they thought it was cool, but it definitely wasn't cool <laughs> for me and my friends. Right. <laughs> I know that's, uh, I can, I can imagine that happening. I I don't remember getting a new bicycle until I was, oh, probably close to 10 or 11, 12. And I think I ended up with a Schwinn Varsity, you know, road bike, 10 speed. But every bike before that was, I think my uncle and my grandfather combined and built me, got me in my first bike. And then it was stolen. And so they went, my uncle went and got it back from the kids that stole it. I mean, they, they stole it while I was on it. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> wow. you know what I mean? They just said, no, no, we're taking this bike. And uh, yep. I was younger and 
there was too many of them. So I surrendered the bike and my uncle flipped out and went and got it. But that was, uh, that, uh, you know, our parents back then did what they could for us. Yep. And it wasn't always, you know, brand new and shiny, but, uh, you know, we appreciated it anyway. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really what got me. I, I've always, I like to tear things apart. I've always, ever since I was a little kid, um, the more technical it was, the more fascinated I was with it. The bicycles was a way that I could take things apart, put them back together. I, I used to take my bicycle apart like in an evening and re-grease the bearings and put it all back together. And, you know, it was just, it was something to do. And I, my bicycle changed its, I had multiple different bikes as I, as we got into middle school and then into high school and got nicer and nicer bikes as I built them and then was able to, um, sell them to friends. And I worked on a lot of friends' bicycles. You know, they'd have a crank set that was, that was making noise. And so you get in there and tighten it up and maybe re-grease the bearings for them. Uh, joined a youth group. So that was probably 13, 14. And one of the older members had this old DG bicycle. Everybody knows DG from motorcycle parts, but they actually even made bicycle frames at one point in time. And I, he had an old DG that he used to race BMX in, and I think I paid $25 for it. And he lived, we were going to school, so we lived in Kingston. We were going to school in Paulsbo, and I don't know, it was probably 20 miles. And so I, after school, I walked with him to his house and paid him his money, got on the bicycle, and I rode it all the way back home. Nice. That's awesome. What was, uh, what was school like for you? You know, did you, did you participate in sports or were you, you know, the guy that was always in the shop classes or, you know, a band or what were you doing? A little bit of everything. I'm just fascinated with learning and fascinated with meeting people and, and doing different things. So always doing something different. I took, I took, I was in music in like seventh or seventh and eighth grade was guitar class. Um, we had we had a great shop class in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade middle school. Uh, very state of the art for the time. And you know, at one point in time, the shop teacher came over and grabbed I think it was three of us and said I basically said I'm I'm looking for three students to you know do a, an advanced project. And he pulled out an old school push pole style saw, you know, like an old logger saw. Right. And laid out a pattern of a knife, a hunting knife blade and, and cut that out, sat there and we had us cut them out. And we sat there and made these hunting knives that probably had a six inch, seven inch blade on them right in middle school shop class. Nice. <laughs> and I, I would put it in my backpack and carry it back and forth to school. I mean, could you imagine do, trying to do something like that today? Yeah, no, it's, I can remember in high school having uh, kids that had uh, rifle racks in their car. And yeah. and I grew oh. up in, on the San Francisco peninsula. You know, yeah. That, we weren't that, country. That, yeah. That was fairly common for us with people. Um, some of the guys with pickup trucks would have rifle racks in the back. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, it was great shop class then high school, uh, same thing. I took 
well, mechanical drafting. My older brother got me into that. I think he took mechanical drafting when he was in ninth grade and it really bored the hell out of him. And I loved it. And my dad had built him a desk with the T and we had a T square and a drawing board and all that stuff. So my brother would bring his homework home and I would do his mechanical drafting homework for him. (laughs) So I probably would have been, I think I'm three years younger than him. So I would have been sixth grade or so. And so then when I, when I started high school, that was a class I went into and I just aced it. And my teacher was just, he was kind of, wow, you know, you did really good, just like your older brother. (laughs) Never wanted to tell him that, well, that's because I did all my older brother's homework. (laughs) So was that the only class you did his homework in? Uh, Yeah. Yep. Um, Yeah, I remember it's, it's, and it's funny too, when you look at the two of us, he was the sports guy. He played basketball, and I don't know what other what other sports he played, but um, is he tall like you are? Yeah, yeah. Okay. But he's 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 kind of like a gorilla. He's um, I'm I'm like the runt of the family almost. Hmm. Um, you know, he's he's I think an inch shorter than me, but outweighs me by a good fifty pounds, maybe more. Okay, um, big big kid, big kid, and. Um, Anyway, he was, but he was sports and I was mechanical. And so like he took a class that was small engine repair and my dad and I would sit there and try to work with him, trying to understand what a spark plug was and how spark gets through and all this stuff. And it was funny because he would just be like, I'm I'm not getting this. (laughs) And and where I, me, I was, I'm just absorbing it and just going, oh, this is so cool. This is so, I got to go to a class like that when I get into high school. Nice. And so I took welding class. I think I took two years of welding, but back or I should say metal shop. Um, you had oxycetylene, you had arc welding, lathe, and a forge. Uh, they had a TIG machine there or Heliarc back then. Right. But the only, you had to be a third year student to, or third year. Yes, third-year shop class student to be able to use the Heliarc machine. And after two years, I was pretty much done with it and wanted to go do something else. Okay. I remember that uh, we had – in our metal shop was very similar to that. I, I wouldn't call it a, you know, a welding shop or anything, even though I never – the only thing I ever did was spot weld. But mm. the uh, – which doesn't help with what I am into today, but – the uh we did a lot of sheet metal bending mm, okay you know we had bend you know the the benders and stuff so that was that was kind of cool taking metal and just something flat and you know putting the angles to it and everything and then coming out with a box <laughs> yeah that that would that would have been neat never got a chance to do that in school um high school shop yep. some yep. sports uh some i I, my brother and I joined a a youth group. It was like 13 to 18. And so we played a lot of sports in that. And the group that we had, the group of boys from our school, they were all very sports oriented. And so when we, when we met the other, the other groups of in this youth group or other chapters, um, 
every year they would have various sports uh, tournaments. And our particular chapter in Paulsville, Washington, just absolutely dominated. I, I think we were bas- the state basketball champs seven out of eight years, volleyball champs more more often than not, things like that. I love volleyball probably because of my height. Basketball was, meh, it was kind of my brother's thing. I just kind of let him do it. Baseball to me was always too slow, and mom wouldn't let us play football. Right. And and not that I had the build for it either. So you were just tall and lanky and thin? Yeah, I I, I was the bean pole. The bean pole, okay. And how tall are you? uh, Five foot 18 inches. Five foot 18 inches. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to take that as 6'6", right? Yep. Okay. So I think you freshman year is when I got my, it might've been sophomore year when I hit 6'6", but freshman year, I was definitely six, probably 6'3", or so. And I think I wrestled in the 130 pound weight class. Wow. So that can kind of tell you how skinny I was and I didn't do very well. (laughs) You're wrestling with guys who are much smaller and more muscular than you. Compact. It yeah, seemed, there you go. Compact. It seemed, it seemed like wrestlers were compact. Yeah, you know they yeah, may the have had ones. long arms, but they were, but they were still compact. Yeah. Yep. So then, uh, did you part? You know, if you're 20 miles from the high school, was it difficult to 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 do after school things like you know dances and stuff like that? Hmm. Not not a ton. We did have after school buses for the first few years. Um, they did end up with some budget cuts and took those out. But that that was always nice. They would have a bus that was a couple hours later, or buses that a couple hours later to get everybody home. Um, basically, we would arrange it with our parents. Um, Typically, my dad, he worked, he worked in town. The only interesting thing was is that my dad was a lineman. And so during the, during the fall and winter up here in the Northwest, you know, we'll get our big storms. And so you might get picked up at, boy, 5 o'clock after school. And you're sitting in a service truck as your dad, maybe another guy is, is out there up, on, up in a bucket trying to restore power and you're watching <laughs> you're watching lines come down and trees come down around you and you might not get home till 10 o'clock you know as soon as dad could could get a break to kind of swing the service truck by the house he could drop us off right um the nice thing about having a dad as a lineman is that a we were rarely without power for more than 24 hours where you know <laughs> kid kids around us would be out, out of power for two or three days right um, second was, um, dad worked a ton of overtime, you know, during the big storms, you wouldn't, might not see him for two or three days. Right. And, um, so Christmas was always spectacular. Nice. So then what did your family do for, you guys lived on the farm. Yep. Out in the kind of, you know, pretty rural. What did you guys yep. do for weekend activities or family activities besides just hanging around the house? Uh, camping. Okay. 
Uh, and in the seventies, my dad got into scuba diving. Oh, okay. And before then it was typically, we'd be out someplace where he could fish or hunt, but, um, in the seventies and I have his original Patty card in one of my folders somewhere just cause I thought it was cool. Um, and he got into scuba diving and just get bit hard with that. And so then all our camping trips then around, uh, uh revolved around being near the saltwater. And he kind of, joke that we've been in every single campground in Western Washington at one point in time or another, <laughs> you know, even, even the ones on, on islands and things like that. Looking for and, places to dive. Yep. Yep. And, um, my dad was his, his favorite thing was spear fishing. Okay. And so we literally ate fish a couple times a week because the freezers would be full of fish and crab and octopus and whatever else that, he thought looked good that he could shoot or, or put in stuff in his goodie bag, scallops and you name it. I mean, we ate, it, it wasn't until I got to be an adult and you know, you're trying to make ends meet and stuff. And here we had a farm with, with cows on it. So we butchered our, or we had our cows butchered and you know, you'd have a freezer full of beef and another freezer full of seafood and you know, you'd have steak You'd have scallops, you'd have octopus, you name it. And we ate like kings. You didn't, you really didn't think much of it until, again, until you get older and you're like, wow, I wish I could have steak almost every single night. Yeah. Or, you know, lobster and scallops and shrimp or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty special. Get through high school and uh, what was the next step? Get as far as away from a learning institution as I could. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I enjoyed school for the social aspects, but I, I, I just don't, I was one of those that was just, my mind goes way too fast and school was way too slow. Right. Okay. If, if I could have figured out a way to slow things down, I'm sure I would have done a lot better in math and I loved English. Um, I took, that's probably the only advanced class I took was, um, they didn't call them AP back then, but I took, you know, like advanced English just so we could read more books and get into, um, get into the meat of, of writing and things like that. Okay. I really enjoyed that. But, but my thing was, I, I was really big in the martial arts and okay. I was really big in, anything mechanical. I mean, it was bicycles. And then as soon as it was time to go for cars, it was cars. And, um, my older brother bought a 1966 Mustang coupe. That was his very first car. I want to say he paid about 800 bucks for it back then, you know, in the seventies, you could buy muscle cars, pretty cheap seventies and early, early eighties. Yep. And, um, that was just like a love affair. Um, love that car I mean, all of us did it was a great car and um yeah you know tons of stories are are around cruising somewhere with my brother he'd take you along even though you were three years younger huh well we were we were involved in the in a youth group and okay. uh, and so we were always going to meetings 
you're, you, we had dances and then these sporting events and all this kind of stuff. And so it was always going someplace. So it was just, it, it was fun. And that, that started a love affair with Mustang. So my dad then soon bought one. And then I bought in a couple old junkers that I would pull parts off of and sell parts or, you know, slowly repair the parts, fix them up. I didn't have my first, I'd had a couple other first cars, but my first Mustang, I was graduated from high school before I finally got one. And I got a 1965 Mustang Fastback a GT, um, four barrel, four speed. And it was, you know, it was about as, about as cool of a Mustang as you could get without having a Shelby. Nice. What kind of trouble did that get you into? Very little, surprisingly. Okay. Um, your country. Yeah. So, and you know, when I when I say country, the the Northwest is not you know rolling hills and and fields. It's trees, <laughs> woods. Right. And I'm I'm really surprised that I hadn't really smashed up a car. I'd never. I hadn't even been in. A, was never even in a serious accident until. Oh boy, I was probably 20, 21 years old. Okay. Um, but we had just up the street from our house, it was going f- kind of from over to the next town. And it was a good two and a half miles, three miles of just twisty turns through the woods. And that was my personal, you know, how fast could you get through it? Time timing it on an old stopwatch and you know, to see how fast you could get through that section. And then it was, okay, how can I make this car handle better? So I guess my first four-way into, into suspension geometry. Okay. And, you know, I soon found out that the Shelby's, you'd take the upper A-arms and re-drill them an inch lower and an inch back. And you do that and all of a sudden, wow, it really changed the handling of the car. And then it was, okay, well, let's, let's, um, let's lop half a, half a coil um, off of the coil springs, um, to set the front down just a little bit more. And that had also stiffen it up and, um, you know, a bigger sway bar off of, I think, gosh, if I remember right, it was like off our Granada or something like that. Okay. And then, then it was, then it was bigger, the bigger disc brakes off of a 69 Mustang because the 69 got the bigger brakes and it was a bolt on swap playing with leaf springs, Replaced a lot of U-joints, um, blew up a, a, a nine-inch that was in the back of that car, and then we got another one that came from, I want to say it was out of a Cougar, and it must have been an automatic because it had 3.0 gears. Oh, Jesus. And let me tell you, all of a sudden, that gave me an extra you know, 20 miles, 30 miles an hour top speed. Right. <laughs> and it was like, oh my gosh, this is phenomenal. Yeah, sure. It wasn't that fast off the line, but if, if I could get into second gear before somebody was two car lengths ahead of me, I was I was gone. <laughs> and and then I had a lot more gear past that. So um yeah, that was that's as I started to learn about gear ratios. It's like, wow, okay, these three O's are incredible. And then when I finally blew that rear end up, I had to go looking for another one that had three O's. And to stuff it back in, to stuff back in there. So when did you, when did the four wheel drive bite you? Mm, I'd, 
I'd been around it. We didn't have four wheel drives as a kid, um, but I knew people who did. My grandfather had one of the old first gen Chevrolet loves. Okay. And he lived out on the coast and he would cruise up and down the, the coast and you know, cutting firewood and helping unstick people. And I remember one time we were, I was riding with them and here's somebody stuck in the sand. And so he comes tooling up to them and asks them if they'd like to get pulled out. And my grandpa's hooking a, a rope up to him to, and starts to pull it out. And the guy's thanking him and must be really nice to have four wheel drive. And my grandpa looks at him and says, yeah, cause then if I need it, I can shift into it. <laughs> you know, the guy was just surprised that grandpa, you know, was driving all around on the, on the beach in two wheel drive, in two -wheel only, drive. <laughs> sh only shift into four wheel drive when you actually needed it. And well, that's a concept that's been lost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't open your toolbox until you need it. Yep. Yep. And I remember one time, a couple different times, there's friends of my dad, friends of my grandfather's who had Jeeps, who had blazers. I remember one time there's, we were down on one section of the, of the beach out behind the jetty and the sand was just all this black sand from the basalt rocks from the jetty. Okay. And it was really easy to get stuck in. And here you watch the, you watch this guy in this blazer and this CJ five, you know, just tearing it up, just ripping back and forth across the sand. And that was, or this black sand that you just sink in. That was really cool. And they used to do a big festival down there uh, every year called the fog festival. And they would have a, there was an old ship, an old cruise liner that had ran aground and when the tide was out, it, it, you know, it's sand all the way around it. And they would do this big race out on the beach that went up and around this old cruise liner. You know, we, we would sit there as kids. Grandma would always take us down there and we get to watch that. And I, but that's not when it hit me. I just thought it was really cool. The, the Mustang bug, that really had me for quite a while. But I wanted to cut things apart, change things and do as much as I could. My even my 65 Mustang, as cool as it was, it was never pretty looking. Right. It was mostly primer and stuff because to me, form follows function. I guess it would have been neat to have a cool paint job and all that stuff, but all my extra money went into better springs, better shocks, better tires, better wheels. It was about making the car better. Right. I understand that concept. Probably what ended that love affair was I had a a lady come through an inter intersection and just T-boned me right in the driver's door and just destroyed that car. And that's probably where being skinny saved me. <laughs> I know, when, when the, the, when the cops got on scene and everything, nobody could believe that I was out of the vehicle and even walking or anything. The driver's seat was about a f maybe a f 10 inches wide or so. I mean, the door was just pushed in and just squished the seat. Wow. But your, your yeah. scrawny butt fit in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that 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 really broke my heart because that was my favorite car. It was so cool, or at least to me. <laughs> right. No, I get, I get it. I get it. Yeah. You know, there's um, there's a certain love affair that you have. Most people have with their first car, whether yeah, you know, in especially in a, a first car that they've put time and effort into. If it was just yep. a first car where, you know, it was a hand-me-down from a, an older brother or from the mom or whatever, it's not quite the same. But yep. when you have that first car and you're doing things to it, 
You know, yeah. it's that you, you, there's that love affair, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Then I had a, after that was a 74 Mustang two Cobra oh. white, white with the blue stripes on it. And I was just like, <laughs> got a hell of a deal. I think I paid like a thousand dollars for it. A Mustang two. Yep. A, you know, of course, then you soon realize that, well, although the front suspension geometry was more advanced, uh, it was heavier and slower. Right. Um, of course, it didn't help that I went from a pretty healthy 289 to a bone stock 2.3 Pinto motor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, af- after that was, I got into e-body uh, Mopars, so challengers and cudas um i had a 73 challenger i loved that was another car I really liked they handled great and then i soon learned how to make adjustments to the suspension in that so that i could make it handle better to me i've, n- I've never been a big fan of drag racing um you know make or or circle track to me it's got it's all about balance and a car doesn't just go in a straight line and a car just doesn't turn left I think I think what got it for me to go that direction was there's two movies. First, mm-hmm. um, Bullet was Steve oh, yeah. McQueen, Heck and yeah. then and then there was Gator McCluskey. It may have been Gator or one of those. I forget which one it was, but he had a uh, Ford LTD yep. that he was running shine in. And that car to me was just so badass because it would handle, it was set really low profile, you know, which you just didn't see that unless they were, cars were running at like Laguna Seca or, you know, Sears Point or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I used to, on on the the Challenger, that was so easy to, to drop the stance. You just get under there and crank down the torsion bars. Well, of course, that would throw the alignment out of whack. And so you take it to the alignment shop and the first thing they do is crank the torsion bars back up and then I'd get it back home and it would be two days later. I'd mess the alignment all back up by dropping the torsion bars down. <laughs> um, Did you and, ever find a middle ground? <laughs> uh, it, there was, there were, there were things you could do, but back then, you know, people weren't cutting. It was you had, you were buying expensive stuff and that was just never my thing. Um, so no, I, I, I ended up trading that in on my first four wheel drive. Okay. So, um, you know, now now you look back at it and you're going, wow, you actually traded away a a 73 challenger for a, uh, uh, 1980 first gen Toyota pickup. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, I think I got like six hundred dollars trade in on it, and that that car these days would be worth you know fifteen k. Fifteen k if it was rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that was my first Toyota pickup. Uh, I moved into a small little house, and I had a neighbor, Lynn Adams, and he had this first gen Toyota pickup with a set of thirty three inch Super Swampers on it. And he would come home, the thing would be come home on a Sunday, the thing would be covered in mud and he would be showing me pictures a week later after he got them developed. And it just looked like so much fun. Oh my gosh. 
And so I went and found a, a first gen Toyota pickup truck sitting in a used car lot somewhere and um, traded my challenger in on it. And that's the start of four wheel drive. And I've been in a four wheel drive ever since. And what were you doing for work either? When did you start working during high school or after high school? During high school, I had a couple jobs, mostly odd jobs. Um, I, I did a lot of mowing lawns for you know all the people in neighborhoods. I'd fix things for people. But the first first real job was washing dishes and prep cook okay. at the local restaurants. And uh, then I did during oh, that must have been senior year of high school. So that I, I almost kickstarted the four wheel drive a little bit earlier. I hadn't yet bought my, my fastback Mustang and, um, I was working for the Kingston sandwich emporium and it was pretty much a sandwich shop and we would work weekends, especially Sundays because Kingston is one of the ferry hubs that goes over back over to the Seattle side. Okay. And, you know, there'd be ferry wait, ferry wait times of, you know, a couple hours to get back on the other side of the water. And so you would sit there and make, make sandwiches and serve soup. And if it was hot days out, we were scooping ice cream. Um, and the owner of that company had a CJ five CJ five. Yeah. It must've been a CJ five. And he moved up from Florida and it had these big wide 33 inch tires on it and had a V eight in it. And he kept trying to sell that to me. He kept trying to tell me, you know what, as much as you like to be out in the woods, you don't need a fast car. You need a four wheel drive and you need a Jeep. You know, he's right. And, yeah. <laughs> I, it would have, I think it would have kind of changed. It would have changed a lot of things younger. But once I got in, you know, later on when I got that first Toyota, then it just kind of snowballed from there. And I had a couple Toyotas past that. Um, let's see, I was doing construction. I did apartment maintenance for a company that had multiple apartment buildings, owned a couple, uh, commercial business businesses. Okay. And I learned a lot from my dad and my grandfather about how to fix just about anything. And we had a big family and, um, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a, we were definitely middle class, but there wasn't a lot of money to go around. So if you wanted something, you fixed it, you built it, or, you know, if something broke, you didn't buy new, you fixed it. Right. How did you end up at ARB? <laughs> well, after I bought my first Toyota, although it might've been when I got my second Toyota, um, I had, there was a four wheel drive shop in town. But they weren't it was a it was a, a store that sold wood stoves. Okay. And in the back they had a counter with you know the old the old catalog racking. Right. And catalogs in it. And so if you wanted something, if you wanted something for your four-wheel drive, the owner of that company had a I guess it was the owner, he had a a big Ford with I don't know, 38 or 39 inch Mickey's. I mean, that was big. That was huge back in the day. Absolutely. And, um, so you, you go in there and you could go in there and, you know, open up a catalog and pick something out and order it if you wanted to, but you couldn't, 
you couldn't see any parts. You couldn't get your hands on parts and being a mechanical, mechanically minded. I just, you know, I wanted to hold parts. I wanted to see what they look like and how they worked and, um, not just a catalog guy. Yeah. And so it was, it was just one of those things. And they, and he was in, they did full size. It's, it's, if I remember right, that's kind of was their focus was, you know, they did a lot more lifted pickup trucks and wood stoves. Yeah. And w- with stoves. <laughs> with- <laughs> um, and so I was just, I was just thinking, you know, we really need a four wheel drive shop and a way to, a way to be able to get parts to enthusiasts and you'd, you'd go out in the woods and you'd meet other people and, you know, people weren't taking Toyota, the Toyotas really seriously back then. You know, now when you talk to people, you know, what are the top four wheel drives? Well, it's, you know, Jeep and Toyota and, you know, even heck, they even take Suzuki Samurai seriously now. Right. And, uh, you know, back then Toyotas were just, you know, it was like, oh, that's cute. You got an import truck. And so that's where the idea of Wild West Off-Road came from. Okay. And, oh boy, we think we fired that up back in the early 90s. No, 80s, late 80s, 89, 90s, somewhere right in there. And because I didn't have a didn't have a huge budget or anything like that, I wasn't carrying stock, but I could show people parts on my truck and I could, you know, I can order this for you. And we didn't have many sales back then. It was definitely a hobby business. That kind of tapered out and we started the Wild West Off-Road Club. And that actually got to be pretty big. I don't. I think at one time we had over 20 members, and we would go around and we joined the local the the Pacific Northwest Four Wheel Drive Association, and we go around to their events and their runs, and you meet more and more people, and you learn more and more stuff, and I get to put my hands all over more and more vehicles, <laughs> and then I got into construction, then I started working for a a truck shop, a semi truck part store. That was my first, I would say my first real job, if you want to call it that, um, where I was actively really learning stuff about, you know, parts ordering and, and keeping, you know, making sure that you can take care of all your customers' needs and all those kind of things. And, and you had to learn, you had to learn a lot about tech. I, I, I started there and I'm asking the boss, Hey, you know, can I take some catalogs home with me or whatever to, to read through them and kind of start learning this. And he just laughed. He says, not with semi trucks. He says, they're all different. You're just going to have to start working and you'll soon get it. That's true. And that's pretty much everything. Yeah. Well, it it really turned out to be if, you know, if it was a, a Kenworth or a Peterbilt, they were very similar. Okay. And even Mack trucks that have the same axles might be an uh, SDHQ or an HQ or an, um, various. Uh, I probably screwed that all up, it's, but it's it's been 30 years since I've worked for the truck shop. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. And now I could then apply what I was learning into Wild West, and then all of a sudden the internet is a thing, and we went and bought our our first big computer. My wife had a computer when she was going through college, but it was like a, I don't know, a 386 or something. Okay. And so, you know, for the internet, that wasn't going to cut it. So we went and spent way too much to have a computer that we'd all laugh at now. I don't know whatever size it was. 
And my wife immediately took to learning how to do web code. And then she was teaching me that we got our first web page up and we started selling parts uh, online. And not a lot, but still, it was it was still a side job, but we had money coming in. I'm thinking I was at the truck shop when it happened. But anyway, my second Toyota had, I had an engine fire in it. Okay. And it burned, burned up. And so then from there, I got in, I had a flatty for a while. I think it was a 1940, it's either a 47 or a 49. I've had both. Um, CJ2, um, like pretty much bone stock. And I went out, I bought it, I drove it home, you know, and everybody tells you they only do 40 miles an hour down the road. And this one cruised really nicely at 45, but no faster. <laughs> um, Had bigger tires on it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I probably wouldn't meet uh, Eric Fuller's version of stock. Um, and then i had a scout for a while i had an old school power wagon 1962 power wagon you know with the great big huge fenders and you know the old military looking power wagons right the wm 300 okay and that that now that legitimately wouldn't do more than about 45 miles an hour down the road um, so but, with all these different vehicles you had and you being the kind of guy that likes to tear into things and going to do your own work and modifications and stuff like that, or, or just repairs even is where you've picked up a lot of the, the tech. Yes. So like when I had the Toyotas, I would go through, boy, I think in, um, in a couple years, I think I'd gone through three rear differentials three rear third members and you go get one out of the wrecking yard for 150 bucks and you know put the axe put a whole nother axle in or maybe just a third member and i'd take it out and beat on it and pretty soon you know bearings would go out pinion bearings and i I had no idea at the time what was happening but i had to start figuring it out and uh, there was a place up north, almost to the Canadian border, up in Bellingham, uh, Northwest Off-Road Specialties. And anybody out there who knows their Toyotas will know that company. Um, that back in the day, they did the coolest Toyota pickups parts. Their catalogs were phenomenal. And I mean, um, they had all the parts that you needed back then. And they built me, I, I was... I had blown another rear end up and it had only been, boy, maybe a couple months since I'd replaced it. And I said, what the heck? I'm just going to go buy one from these guys. They offered rebuilt Toyota third members. And so I went up there and it was like a three or four hour drive up to them and bought a, a third member, all freshly rebuilt, put it, put it in. And I'll be danged if that one didn't last probably a whole year and a half before I tore that one out. And it got me thinking that there's got to be more to a differential. And, you know, how come I can tear up a stock one fairly fast, yet these, the one that these guys built lasted so long compared to all the others. Right. Well, then we'll fast forward up into where I'm working at this truck shop. And we had a, we had a local shop a couple miles away from us that they re, they did work 
um, on semi trucks. And so they re they rebuilt transmissions and rebuilt axles, the third members. And so I got talking with their, the owner of the company and asked them, you know, what, you know, how, how do you put together a differential? How do you make it work? How do you make them strong? And he had no idea about, at the time I was into Samurais. I think I'd, I think I'd gotten rid of the scout and we bought our first Suzuki Samurai. And I had a friend who wanted, I think he tracked me down on the internet because um, I was selling Lockright lockers for the Samurai and he wanted a gear change too. And so the guy delivered me two third members and I call up Paul, the owner of this, this truck shop said, Hey, I've got two third members. Can we, can, will you show me how to set them up with gears and everything? And I'd done a few locker swaps, but I'd never messed with gears. And so I came up, I brought pizza and beer. We sat in his shop one evening and rebuilt both of these Suzuki Samurai diffs with four, five, sixes and um, put the lunchbox lockers in them. That was the first gear job I ever did from for Wild West. I mean, that was, <laughs> it was, I actually didn't do it. You know, I had somebody do it and he was teaching me how to do it. That's okay. That's, and, that's what it's all about. Yep. Um, but we put them in the guys, or I gave them to the guy. The guy put them in his samurai and showed up to a trail run a couple days later. And he went wheeling with us and heck, he wheeled the heck out of those things for quite a while. Um, never had an issue with them. And I just, I took what I learned there. I tore into my differentials. I told, tore into other friends' differentials. And that's what really got me into axles because then I'm realizing, wait a minute, there's lots of little things you can do to an axle to make it so much stronger, make them last longer. Right. And then that also wild west really took a hard turn towards Suzuki Samurais. There was nobody doing parts for them back then, or at least not many. And so we were the first, there was a guy down in California, Mario. He used to run a, a newsletter you'd subscribe to and he'd mail it. And it was, it was called the Katana and it was just about Suzuki Samurais. I got to be pretty good friends with him and learned a lot more about that, uh, the Samurais. I got to be friends with Kai Serrano, which most people know him these days. I don't even know if he's still into him, but he got really heavy into Unimogs. But he was the one, Kai Serrano and Mario were the ones that came up with how to do the original Rock Lobster key case, which was you take the front half of gears from a Samurai and the back half of gears from an SJ410, the, the prior Samurai. And you mixed and matched the gears in the transfer case and you come up with a 4.16 uh, low range. Hmm. Okay. And that was the start. Those are the two guys that that um, figured out how to do that. And they were actually taking, you'd have the cluster gear, which had two gears on it, and you'd actually have to cut those in half and then machine a little step in them, press them together, and then TIG weld them together. Wow. And that was, that was the start. You know, all the other samurai gears that you see, especially these days, they do six, five gears, all that. Well, everything came off of what Kai and Mario had figured out. And so I, I did a bunch of those transfer cases. And then we started doing suspension. I got to be friends with the people up at ARB. They were just in Seattle. 
And I started doing old man emu suspensions for Samurais. And then, of course, the ARB bull bar. I, at one point in time, I was selling more old man emu suspension for the Samurais than anybody else in the country. Okay. And that, that may sound like a lot, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it made a name for me is that people knew me as the Suzuki guy. And it made it, it helped, it gave me a name at ARB because everybody knew that I was selling lots of parts. And um, a good friend of mine, Dewey, had, he, he would belong to the Boeing four-wheel drive club. And somewhere across one of their bulletin boards, um, a, it came across that ARB was looking for a, somebody to manage their tech department. And so he sent it down to me and said, hey, I don't know if you've seen this or not, but it might be something that you'd be interested in. And I was still working at the truck, the truck shop at the time and then running Wild West on the side. And we were actually doing – we were doing fairly well with Wild West. Um, I mean, as a sideline business, it was definitely more – spent more time on that. I could have taken more time off of the, the truck shop job just as, to do it on – on the wild west side okay. and anyway so I, I what the heck so i gave him a call and jim jackson the president at the time invited me up and i interviewed with him and chris wood who was the west coast sales manager at the time mm-hmm. and they were first really surprised that i was interested in coming to work for them they're like wow you're selling parts and you're doing you've got your own website and of course this is back in the 90s and you know, not a, people weren't just building their own websites. If you get what I'm saying, I mean, I know people right. were, but they were just kind of surprised that I wanted to come work for them. And to me, it was all about learning and learning more. And so, next thing I know, I found myself as a tech manager for ARB. Now, that may sound very, you know, high level or whatever, but back then, ARB, I was the seventh man in the door. Okay. <laughs> we were pretty dang small and you didn't just, you know, run tech because first off, there wasn't enough tech calls coming in. Second, well, you had to be out helping unload containers or helping move things in the warehouse or taking sales calls or, you know, yeah, everybody did everything. It was, it was really one of those small back then, one of those small businesses and everybody pitched in on everything, everything. Right. Um, it was, it was really neat. It was a great time to get into the industry. I spent, what, not, what year do you think that was about? Oh, that was 1997. Okay. 97. Was, yep. I started, uh, I want to say September 1st, 1997. Maybe September 2nd, somewhere right in there. I spent nine years with ARB, and it was a phenomenal job. I met so many great people that that I learned so much from, and I've become friends with so many people. I mean, you. I got to meet. I got to meet. I got involved with going to the going to events, and so you, pretty soon you find yourself at a rock crawling event. And here's, you know, I get a and and having that ARB shirt on opened a lot of doors for me. A lot of people. Wanted to talk to you because you're the ARB guy because first they might have had a question or they might have had a problem. And I always carried around a small little, you probably remember, I always carried around a small little satchel type thing with loaded with, you know, solenoids and airlines and airline splices and switches and pressure switches and tools to replace them. And so, you know, you could go from one car to the next, helping people sort out any problems they had. 
Right. And then you'd go to a, you'd go to a four wheel drive event. My, the very first four wheel drive event I went to as an ARB representative was in, I think February of 98 would have been 98. And I hadn't been there. I'd only been with the company for well since September and the, the bosses, he comes up to me and stuffs $900 cash into my hand and <laughs> says, you've, you've, you've got a credit card, right? Yeah. So great. I need you and hands me his keys to his XJ Cherokee and says, uh, I need you to go down to the very first, this is a new event put on by the Southwest four wheel drive, the chili challenge. Okay. And this was down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And he says, make sure you take extra time, you know, stop in at Moab. I want you to go say hi to people in Moab. Um, uh, he had, he had a couple other shops along the way, stop in, introduce yourself, say hi, see if there's anything you do to help them or answer any questions. And so I want to say that was like a two week trip to drive out from Washington all the way down to Las Cruces, New Mexico and stopping at shops along the way and on the way back. I get down there. I I have I have no idea. I should reach out back out to this to these people, but there's a fellow down there, Huff's High Tech Auto, and that was Jim Huff, and he was our ARB dealer down in Las Cruces. And so I went and stayed with him and his wife Nancy, and then we went out to this event. And the very first night, standing around the campfire, oh, the one of the, the other instruction I had from Jim Jackson at ARB was, you know, he gives me the 900 bucks cash. He says, well, that's some expense money. He says, but understand, we buy drinks. We're going to buy the beer. So when you, show up at, when you show up at the campfire, make sure you have a case of beer and you're handing out beers to people. And He knew the way to everybody's heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, and he, he, you know, had done this for years. He's... I've had a lot of great bosses, but he's probably, he's definitely top two. Um, he, he was a huge influence in my life and, and made things, made a lot of things possible for me. Anyway, so first night around the campfire, I'm standing there, I'm handing out beers to people and, and uh, Frank Curry comes up and introduces himself. And, you know, everybody knows John Curry and Ray Curry and, and even Charlie Curry. But right. not a lot of people got it unless you've been in the four wheel drive industry for years. Not a lot of people got to meet Frank Curry and he, he finds out that I'm from ARB and, and finds out that I'm basically brand new. And he says, well, you know what? Just stick with me, kid. And so the whole weekend, I, he kind of took me under his arm, him and the, the old rap pack back in the days, which was Frank Curry and then Pat Gramillion and um, Harold off. You remember right. Harold? Oh, yeah. And there's a couple other gentlemen in there. I don't quite remember the names, but those three really kind of took it serious that they were going to take me under their arm or, or under their wing, I should say, and kind of introduce me to everybody and get to be friends with everybody. And that I, down there I met um, at that event. That was a pretty big event back in the day, and it was yes. the very first one. Uh, met Marlon Crawler. Met um, Ned Bacon. Okay. Uh, one day I'm I'm switching from one trail over the hill to another trail, and I'm standing on the side of the trail taking photos as I'm watching uh, a couple rigs come by, and here comes this black extra cab Toyota pickup 
comes rolling up on, I think he was on 35s and this fellow leans out the window and he says, Hey brother, what are you doing? I'm just taking photos. Well, would you like a ride? Would you like to hop in? Well, you can, you could probably guess who that fellow in a black extra cab Toyota pickup was. That was JT Taylor. Okay. JT, huh? Yep. And he was, (laughs) he was home on a break from the, from the military. And that's, I, yeah, I got to meet JT Taylor back before he, uh, you know, was known for his epic mustache. <laughs> and and I got to give a shout out. L- love you there, JT. It's been a long time, brother. That's awesome. Um, and that's kind of the way ARB became. I just, I, I got to, I got to, I got to learn so much about axles. I got to meet people who really knew axles phenomenally and, and taught me so much. And you just threw out the industry across the nation from the West coast to the East coast up into Canada. And then down, we also covered this whole side of the earth. So I traveled extensively through Central America, Mexico, and uh, South America. Okay. And I have to this day, I still have some very good friends who were clients in different countries. I've four wheeled in, Boy, I want to say eight different countries. Nice. Now. Um, and you know, sometimes it was it was. I'm sure Sal will remember this story if he's listening. Um, where we blew through a gorilla roadblock in his Hilux Toyota pickup in Guatemala. <laughs> <laughs> and I. Do you get shot at? <laughs> no, that's why he. That's. Okay. They're all dressed. We come flying around the corner, and here's all these guys in olive drab fatigues holding M16s, and they have coffee cans full of gasoline out blocking the road off with, you know, they're on fire as kind of like torches. Right. And as soon as he sees them, he downshifts, and he goes flying right through them. They step out of the way, and boom, we go flying and headed up the hill. And I'm going, dude, what the hell are you doing? He's like, what? I'm like, you just like blew through the government. He goes, are you sure they're the government? Are they shooting at us? And I said, no, they're not shooting at us. He goes, that wasn't the government. <laughs> he says, they probably only had maybe five or six bullets amongst all of them. <laughs> but they none, none chambered at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, lots of stories of, uh, Central America, South America travel like that. I've four wheeled up in the Himalaya, not Himalayas, excuse me, the, the Andes mountains. Okay. Um, we were down in Argentina taking care of a client down there. And let me tell you, one of the things that's always impressed me with mechanics. So it doesn't matter what language you speak. If you speak, if you have a mechanical mind, Every, you, you get it. You can always tell people who get it and people who don't. And we were down, I was down in Argentina. We had a, instead of this guy didn't own a shop, he was just a distributor for us. So he was supplying all the shops with ARB parts. And I was doing a seminar on how to, how to install an airlocker and what to, what to look out for. And, and I didn't speak very good Spanish. I mean, I, I took Spanish in high school, but it had been quite a few years since, right. you know, over 10 years since I was out of high school. 
And so I was, you know, all the whole flight down, I'm reading, trying to learn. This trip was all kind of a last minute trip. So it's like, okay, learn as much Spanish as you can. I end up down in Argentina giving a, a talk on, about how to put in an ARB airlocker to a bunch of people who do not speak English. And I have, a, I have an interpreter there, but the interpreter is not a mechanical at all. So he had no idea basically what to call most of the stuff. He didn't know what a ring and pinion was. You know, he didn't know what an axle shaft was. <laughs> he right. didn't know what he didn't he didn't know the name for a bearing. <laughs> and so I they they supplied me with a few parts that I could have on my bench as I'm talking. And as I'm talking, I'm talking in English and giving letting this interpreter then talk in Spanish. And there'd be sections I'm talking in English and you could just see the mechanics out there shaking their heads up and down. They got it. They totally got it. Even though they didn't under, we didn't understand each other. They, they understand the diff, you know, how important backlash is, how important uh, bearing preload is, um, you know, all, all the various things. So that was really kind of opened my eyes going, wow, this is really neat. And it just, it just made me want to learn more and more and more tech and really then kind of start pushing the envelope on how could you make things better? You know, even, even though I want to say that ARB, yeah, they were perfect and never had a failure. Hey, we, we know that's not true. Everything breaks. Right. And so we spent a lot of time, um, you know, figuring out how to make things not break. And at the time when I first started for ARB, there was only one person in that department, in the airlocker department. And he was, he wasn't an engineer. He was a draftsman. And so he would draw up the new designs. We would send him axle pieces and they would measure them up and he would draw it up and then he'd figure out how to fit existing airlocker components into, you know, make this all work. Um, hmm. It wasn't until later that they hired a young, uh, young fellow, um, Daniel Bongarten. I think you've met him. He he comes out to uh, KOH quite often. Okay. And um, Daniel was a, a new kid on the block at ARB, and he, if I remember right, he has his master's in gear design, and he, he knew nothing about differentials. I knew nothing about engineering per se. But we just hit it off because I wanted to make the airlocker the best I could, and he really wanted to. Sh he wanted the same thing. And so, over the course of the next few years, we really worked together great. Really, just making the product solid. You know, ARB continued to grow. I mean, when I when I started from for him, I want to say that our, you know, if we had a five hundred thousand dollar month, that was that was a big month. And, right. you know, nine years later, when I left, we were having $2 million months. Nice. And, and, that, and that was, that was, um, that was, that was in part because of the team that Jim Jackson put together. The sales crew was great. The shipping department, they were, they were, you know, busted their butts to get everything out the door. Tech department, we did whatever we could to help people get their stuff fixed and get them back on the trail that was always our first thing is the most important thing is to get somebody on the trail 
you know, marketing worked their butts off and, you know, it was always, it was always a shoestring effort and it was a very family. It had a feel of a family ran business. Right. It was really neat. And now you, you left ARB and you were still doing wild west, right? Yes. So what happened was as, as, you know, during while I was at ARB, that's when all of a sudden vehicle competitions, four-wheel drive competitions really started kicking in. That's when you had the rock crawl competition starting up and moving along. And then now all of a sudden people are trying to figure out or finding out that a lot of the axles in the vehicles out there aren't, aren't strong enough to take a lot of abuse, especially with bigger tires and more horsepower. Right. And so I started figuring out how can we tweak airlockers to make them even better and how to tweak axles to make them stronger and better. And so that's when we started doing bigger spline air lockers. And I'd met a, I'd met a, a retired gentleman who had a small machine shop. He ran as a hobby and he had a EDM machine. And so I could take gears to him, side gears from an ARB and he'd EDM them out to a larger spline for me. And then I would, I would, chuck the the housings up in the lays and cut out the cut out meat out of the bearing journals so then we could put a bigger shaft in them so now i'm doing big spline arbs and over the years arb then started making their own big spline versions but right back in the day the only way you could do it was either through me or through sandy cone was the other one who was doing them quite a bit and there's there's another person i met through arb was sandy cone and camo so back if you remember the old camo 40 camo 40 yep. spline 60 so they got me involved in that whole deal camo called me and says well i'm gonna have my axle guy call you you know i i had no idea who camo was other than he was from pirate but i didn't realize how big pirate was at the time well they were still growing back then right and so that got me on to, that got me on to um into pirate four by four and then that the axle guy that called me was sandy cone you know, he's desert racing axle guru from way back and him and I just hit it off. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but he's still one of those fellows that we've, you know, that we just, I would stop in. If I was in California, I'd stop in at Sandy's house to, to see him and, and stop at his shop, I should say. And, and he was always on my short list to call if I had a question. Same with Jason Bunch. There's another fantastic uh, individual that you should throw up on your podcast if you get a chance to talk with him yeah he's like you mm-hmm. takes forever to get you guys on the phone <laughs> <laughs> you just get busy yes um so jason and i became just uh, very good friends i i matter of fact when i'd come to la jason would pretty much okay you're staying at my house i'm like no arb's paying for my hotel it's like no you're staying at my place and we, yeah, I, I love the heck out of him and his wife. They were great people and uh, try kind of gear. I mean, they, they were always known as pushing the envelope, making things better. And I learned a lot of stuff from Jason Bunch, not only just on axles, but also on suspension, especially suspension geometry. Right. Gosh, there's so much. <laughs> we're not even scratching the surface. Um, <laughs> so like I had a, I had a, my, I still had a samurai. I was really into samurais back then. Um, I had a local shop, local to me. This is when I first started for ARB. I was tired of blowing up samurai axles, and I and it didn't. This was before um, Bobby Long doing the 
the high strength Toyota joints. Okay. And I didn't want to put Toyota axles in, which is what everybody was doing into a samurai. And so I had a, a local shop up here, well known in the Northwest, but I don't think much beyond Northwest and that's rears and gears. And at the time he was building custom axles. If you asked him, he won't do it these days. He's now just so busy doing ring and pinions. Um, but he built me a high pinion 44 front and shortened up a, um, a nine inch van housing for me. And then we put in one of the, gosh, I want to say it was the first run or second run of the Curry high pinion nine. So that was a very capable rig. And also now I had axles that could hold decent tires and somewhere in there is, well, when I, when I met Ned Bacon, I rode with Ned Bacon for a, a day on the trail down in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And Ned had just done a coil spring suspension on the killer B. Okay. And so now all of a sudden I had something new to do to the samurai. So next thing you know, my samurai sitting under, under coils, I had YJ springs in the back, old mini mu, of course, coils up front, and then a 44 and nine inch combination with 35, the big 35, 16 wide boggers. And it ran in that configuration for quite a while. Wasn't enough gearing. So I called Marlin up. I'd gotten to be really good friends with Marlin at the time. And Marlin, can we do doublers in a, in a Suzuki? And he says, no, I looked at it. Somebody brought me this stuff and wanted me to do this. And he said, there's no way in hell it could, it could be done. So Marlin looked at it and just didn't see how it could be done easily. Right. And so boom, all of a sudden I had a new challenge. So I think I'd rebuilt a couple air lockers for Marlin, something along those lines or whatever. Anyway, he was feeling, um, a little bit in, indebted to me and, and, or whatever you want to call it. And, he next thing I know, I have a doubler Toyota doubler setup sitting on my on the tech bench at ARB, and uh, so it's like, okay, I'm gonna get this in my Samurai. And <laughs> so if if you look at a five speed Samurai transmission where the shifter sets and the shift rails are, that hangs out about five inches past the output shaft. So you actually have like this box that comes backwards from the transmission above the output shaft. And so your U-joint where that your yoke slides into the transmission, your U-joint is actually sitting below underneath the box that holds your shifter in and your shifter rails. So I pulled out a Sawzall and I cut that box off, sliced an opening in the top of the transmission, basically shortened the whole shifting housing and, and shifter rails just over four and three quarters of an inch. I think it was. And now the back of my transmission was flat. And then we could weld a plate on there that happened to have the Toyota bolt pattern. And now all of a sudden doublers could fit in. And so the Samurai had dual Toyota tra uh, transfer cases and then couple it with the 44 front and the nine inch rear and the 35 inch boggers. And the thing was just, it was incredible. Um, you know, we could do all the Northwest trails, didn't have any, didn't have any issues. And then, you know, coils only lasted for so long. And then now it's coilovers. Oh, I, another, another great person I met through ARB, Randy Ellis. Right. Okay. I was down in, I talked to Randy a few times, helped him troubleshoot uh, a couple ARB issues, air locker issues. 
And so next time I was in Phoenix, he says, well, stop in at my shop. And he was working out of his house at the time. And so I stopped in there and um, he, he's got this, this Jeep of his that's on coilovers. And matter of fact, I, this is, this might've been when I first, might've first met you. I think you were doing a We Rock or maybe it was a, maybe it was an ARCA event. That was out in uh, Mesa, Arizona. Okay. Back, Pat Gramillion was there, Randy Ellis, Shannon Campbell. Oh, hey, Las Cruces, New Mexico. Also the very first time I ever met Shannon Campbell and his wife, Tammy, and they had one of their kids with them who was in a baby seat. Might have been Waylon, might have been, must have been Waylon. Anyway, so Randy had coilovers on this Jeep. Well, that's one, that's a whole nother thing for me to do. So as soon as I got home, coils came out and coilovers went in a samurai. So might have, might have had the first coilovers in a samurai. Might have been, I definitely showed up to like Moab, Easter Jeep Safari that very next year. And the only people there with coilovers was Randy Ellis and me. Nice. Um, and it was, it was so neat to, you know, you met Rick Payway and you name it, all the movers and shakers, the guys who are really pushing the envelope. And it was so nice to be on the, on the phone with these guys all the time learning what's new, what are they doing? And I was able to take that, put my own little spin to it. And that kind of what helped really drive my leading ARB was that I had so much side work that, okay, maybe I, maybe I can make this a go. I can do a bunch of custom stuff. And that's my, my brother-in-law was really, really pushed that my um my wife's brother uh he basically did a lot to help him and his wife did a lot to help um my wife and i open up wild west off-road seriously as a full-time gig and they were just fantastic um so huge shout out to darwin and nancy and so we started that but we also started that in 2007 oh yeah so the first, ah, there was, there was the honeymoon period. It was great. We had so much business. We were building roll cages for people. We were doing a lot of suspension work for people, axle work. And then I got involved in an industry with an industrial company that, that, um, I was doing a lot of welding on semi truck trailers and semi trucks and all kinds of stuff. That was, that was great. That brought a lot of money in and we were doing really good. And then the crash hit and then it's the same old story with a lot of a lot of companies that you heard. You know, you go, you ride great, really nice waves, you know, but then you also have the very bottoms of those waves where you're trying to make pay uh, paycheck to employees and trying to make uh, rent payments and trying to do all kinds of different things. And it, I, I definitely kept a lot of quite a few employees longer than I should have which means that, you know, you get a job done and, and everything you put on the credit card, you did get it paid off because then you were using the money that you made from the job to pay salaries to your employees. Right. And so, you know, that was, I, I definitely should have gone to business school <laughs> or I don't know. And you get into racing, then racing, you know, King of the Hammers come along. And now next day I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing 40 spline, 14 bolts, 40 spline axles of all sorts and helping people make really good axles, you know, make the axles in their, 
KOH cars, their 4,400 cars, last, um, whether it be nine-inchers or what. Well, Bruce Zeller, he's, there's a great example for you, Bruce Zeller. Um, right. He was having, he was having his, his nine-inchers put together by um, a company, and he was blowing them almost one a, every, every event that he would go do. And he ended up, we got to be friends talking over the phone on the ARB tech line. And he said, well, Hey, would you give, would you, would you take a chance at building my diffs for me? I said, sure. What the heck? Send them up to me. So he, he UPS nine or excuse me, five, nine inch third members up, up to me. And I took them all apart and made a few changes and put them all back together, sent them all back down to him. He put one set in, he ran the whole season on that set. And that was the year that he, him and Tracy Jordan were fighting out for the championship. Right. And they got right to the very end on the shootout. And Bruce Ellers, one of his diffs, he, he, he breaks something in the diff. And that's, that's, I think he, that he tied or he tied, they tied in the shootout, but because Tracy had more wins during the season, Tracy got the championship. Bruce Eller took second, something along those lines. Okay. And, you know, of course I'm, as he calls me and he tells me, well, you know, we broke one of your diffs and I'm like, I'm, I'm asking him, well, you know, I want to see it. What broke, what broke? And he's like, well, don't worry about it. I ran that same differential the whole season long. <laughs> And I'm laughing to myself thinking, wait, wait, I built you five. The whole idea is you were going to be changing these out and I could, I could get a look at them and see what's wearing funny or see what's changing and can we make it stronger or whatever. And he, he laughed and he told me, well, they were working so good. Why would I pull one out? <laughs> because when it did break, it was at the wrong time. Yeah. When it did break, it caught it as and I, I wasn't at the event, so I didn't see all of the stuff, but he, um, anyway, that was, that was really interesting. So, um, another thing though, one of the things that really kind of helped me, helped me get through some of the tight times at wild west was I right at my last year at ARB, uh, Dave Zartman had started four wheel drive Toyota owners magazine. Right. And so we'd gotten to be friends and I, I asked him a couple times because I've all magazines. I mean, back in the day, you didn't get on the internet. You read magazines, and I had a huge four-wheel drive magazine collection. And I kept asking him, "Let me write an article for you. Let me write an article for you." But for some reason, he didn't want the tech guy who was known working at ARB to write an article for him. He didn't think that was that was you know going to be good sport or whatever. I anyway. So, but after I left ARB. All of a sudden, he's like, okay, you can write articles for me. We started, I started writing tech articles for him. And that's how I got into writing for the magazines right off the bat. So I started writing for him. And everybody got to know me as the guy who wrote for the, the Toyota magazine. Yep. And then uh, Tim P- Peel, right. back, back in the extreme off-road days. Right. I know um, all about those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's when that, that's when that, we first met too. Yeah, well, extreme off-road 
XOM was my baby. That was that's what I wanted to start when I started CalRocks. So I wanted a magazine because there was nothing out there for hardcore enthusiasts. Okay. I didn't and, know you were tied in on that angle. Oh yeah, the whole the name and how the layout was going to be and everything. And I got a call from um Tim's partner, Dave Fiola, and I'm still friends with him. And he he calls me up one day and says, "Hey, I understand you're going to start a magazine." And so we talked for hours. And I said, "Here, why don't I do this? Why don't I just send you everything and you run with it? Just be, you know, just just show us some love during during our season." And that's what happened. But they only got three issues out. Yeah. Yep. And I still have those three issues. Oh, nice. Um, and then yeah, then then crawl started with Tim Peel. Peel, Peely, whatever it was. And yeah, Tim Peel, and yeah, they, he, uh, they, they had to change the name. That failed again, yep. and then that's when John Herrick stepped in. Yeah, so I, I wrote, I wrote, um, I wrote one article for Tim. It was about making your own jack stands, and that was, you know, higher jack stands than what you could buy in a store. You know, something for the four wheel drive market. Right. And that was real popular. And so then I wrote a few more for him, but I don't think any of the others got into print. John Herrick and I have talked a couple times about writing for him, and I'd still like to write for Crawl Magazine, but that just never happened. And of course, I wrote for you. That was really uh, fun to get back into. And one thing I love writing for the Toyota Magazine, but I'm not a single brand conscious person. I think there's good things about right. all vehicles. So, it was neat to write things that were non-Toyota for you, for Four Low Magazine. Right. And then it was um, kind of another big shift. So we're going to go back. If you remember um, Off-Road Expo at in Pomona, and you were talking with a guy named, if I remember right, Howard Perlman? Howard Pearl. Pearl. Okay. Yep. And... That's when we first met uh, Ian Johnson, and um, that's when David Fiola had come back out of hiding after the failure of XOM, and he was working with um, a company to do a four-wheel drive TV show, and David Fiola called me out of the blue and said, hey, would you be a host? Would you be the host of the show? So we were there, and I think I even and I interviewed um, Howard Pearl for the show. We did. We shot a whole pilot, walking around interviewing various people in the four wheel drive industry. That's what got me. I I I'd, I'd already known the guys from uh, Interco. I mean, you if you live in the Northwest, especially back in the day when everything we ran was mud, you ran swampers. If, if you know, anytime you show up to an event without swampers, you you kind of got laughed at because you weren't going to go very far. Right. <laughs> and so I'd, I'd been friends with um, Warren, the old man forever, and then got to be friends with Dave Gidry, the current, I believe he's still CEO of Interco. Dave Cole, which I'd met through one of your We Rock events, or and over Pirate. And Dave right. Cole's standing there. That's when he, he. That's when he had that. I think it was that FJ Cruiser looking buggy. And he was he was in the Interco booth. And I go walking up there, and we have the camera, and we're gonna. I'm gonna interview these guys. And both of them are like, No, 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 no. We don't do interviews. That doesn't work. That's not gonna work. We're not gonna do it. And so I said, Okay, well, do you mind if I just ask you a few questions? 
and I kind of made a little motion with my hand behind my back and, and uh, I started asking both Dave uh, Gidry and Dave Cole questions about, you know, what's going on at Interco, what's going on with your rock crawling and all that. And after a couple of minutes, I said, okay, great. Interview's over. Both of them then looked up and realized that the cameras were up and rolling. And they said, <laughs> uh, you just did an interview with us? Yeah. <laughs> we just, that, that's it. This is, it's a wrap. That was, you guys were great. And they couldn't believe it. And so then the, not the, not the unofficial KOH, but the very next KOH, the very first official KOH, Dave Cole called me and asked me to come down. And if you, if you watch the very first KOH video and you, you know, it always cuts to the racers in a race trailer or someplace and they're, and they're basically like answering questions, but you never see the interviewer. That's you. That was me, the interviewer. So Dave Cole gave me a nice little um, credit in the in the video, but nobody knew it was me asking the questions. <laughs> um, and so then that kind of that went on for a couple years, and then somehow I think it was Jeff Knoll. He he did a little announcing for you. I'm I really got to meet him and got to know him at Paris We Rock, one of the Paris We Rocks. Okay. And I was spotting for Rob McKenney. So we went down there and, oh, and that was the infamous Jason Shear and uh, Campbell drag race in the parking lot of Hooters. He was in his Campbell buggy. Oh, no, I, I was there. I was one of okay. the very, there's a lot of people who claim that they were there and I was there. It was, so it was after tech and everything, everybody had pretty much left. And we were, because I had hooked up Rob McKenney with the Campbells. That's where that whole relationship came from because Rob's a Northwest boy. He's, he's right up here just about an hour from me. Right. And he used to stop in at ARB all the time. We got to be friends and then he got into rock crawling and uh, there's another, there's another fun thing. You remember his, his Subaru powered buggy. Um, I did all the design work to hook a Subaru up to a turbo 350. Okay. And anyway, so I'd ridden down with Rob to, Paris and we were waiting around for the Campbells to show up and then Shear shows up. And that's, that's when I kind of really got to know Shear and then the Campbells show up and in the parking lot and then they unload the new car and Shear's buzzing around. And then that's that whole incident that started with the uh, infamous hot rodders. uh, Yeah. The hot rodders, the guys in the, in the Mustangs driving by revving engines, thinking they're really cool. And, and, uh, (laughs) Yeah, that was and Jason smoked him in the parking lot <laughs> with with four, 39 fives with water in them. Yep. Yeah, that was uh <laughs> that was pretty funny and we all just sat there and laughed and and then that's when I got to meet Nick Campbell. Jeff Knoll was announcing at that race. Jeff Knoll and Dustin Webster were announcing at that at that event. Okay. And Jeff Knoll kept trying to get me to come up to the announcer stand and do some announcing. But I was spotting for Rob McKinney, so that kept me real busy. And then somehow that turned into me announcing for you. And Probably then, had something to do with Dustin then. Yeah, could be. Um, yeah. Whoever it is, big big shout out to thanks there. And okay. then um, where I got announcing at, actual announcing at KOH was the year that uh, – Hammer King Productions hired Pirate 4x4 to run their live feed. And that's when it was um, 
Camo and Lance and uh, Jesse Combs. Right. And I was walking through, uh, Camo got really sick, lost his voice. And I was walking through Hammertown going to visit somebody. And all I heard over the, the intercom was tech Tim's out there somewhere. I saw him tech Tim come up to the pirate booth and I get up there and here's camo saying, man, I, dude, I can't do this. My voice is gone. And we still got um, days of qualifying in the big race. And so next thing I know, I found myself with a microphone in the hand. <laughs> and um, since then I've, I did a couple races for John Goodby I did a few years with the Hammer King Productions, um, not just King of the Hammers, but also a few other events. And I did a, what I did two years with you on the West Coast for the We yep. Rock events. And then again, you just continue to meet people. And instead of hiding out, to me, I had to have stuff to talk to. So I always went in the evenings after the racing's done. I'm going from pit to pit or um, – you know, where, uh, wherever, just to meet people, to find out about their vehicles. And inevitably that led to talking about the technical side of it. And it just kind of grew and snowballed. And so then it ended abruptly. And I just, I was burned out on a lot of things. One of the things was the business. I just had to close the business. I was just losing money hand over fist. And I wasn't doing anybody any good, especially my wife and mine financial situation. So right. I had to go do something. So I had, I had a couple jobs here and there worked for a water jet company. At one point in time, I really wanted to, to just op- get a water jet table and just start doing water jet cut parts. And so I, I worked for a water jet company for a few years, learning how basically the insides and outs of how to repair, how to take these machines apart, put them back together and all that. I worked for a couple fab shops. I worked. I even worked a couple months for a company that builds hovercrafts, doing SolidWorks designs for them. Nice. And so I got to learn about the world of hovercraft. And gosh, we even go back to when I was working in the at the truck shop days. I got a lot of the truck drivers were into circle track racing. We had a couple small circle tracks down were down Olympia area, where I was living at the time. And so I worked with some circle track teams. And even though I wasn't a huge fan of circle track racing per se, um, I love the tech behind it. And so it was always about, okay, how do we make a car hook up harder? How do we make a car go faster, you know, into the turn, brake real hard without overheating the brakes and then get off of it and back on the gas? Um, it's all about learning that tech, why and how things work. Yeah, so that's just that's just the way my brain works. I love that technical challenge. And um, oh, uh, I guess uh, one little thing we ought to throw in there: um, where I got the name Tech Tim. There you go. So I got the name Tech Tim working at ARB. We had another Tim working for us, Tim Burris. Everybody knew him as T.R. Burris. But his name was Tim also, and people would call and ask for Tim. Well, then it was always, what Tim? And we had a receptionist. Uh, I wish I could remember her last name. She was a great gal, Lisa. And she would be on the, the intercom, call for sales Tim or call for tech Tim. <laughs> and so then when, pe- when people call up and they would say, you know, hey, I've got, I've, 
I've got a problem with my airlocker, she would say on the phone, oh, you want to talk to tech Tim? Well, so then pretty much people were just calling from the very get-go, hey, can I talk to tech Tim? Nice. And then that just stuck. And then that, then when I joined Pirate, which is the very first four-wheel drive forum that I officially joined and became active on, although I had, I had lurked on it for a couple of years, but I hadn't really got into it. And of course, well, everybody, I was still working at ARB and everybody knew me as Tech Tim. So that became my username. And then it just kind of grew from there. How did, uh, how did Northridge come about? Well, <laughs> again, the meeting people and just being in the right place at the right time. So I was down at SEMA and it must have been 2000, it was 2017, SEMA 2017. And I was down there, it was for the Toyota magazine. And I'm standing in the line at security of the Las Vegas airport to fly back to Seattle. And I've turned out I'm standing in line next to David and Malo, David Johnson, the owner for the CEO of Northridge 4x4. And we both knew each other. We didn't know each other well as friends or anything like that, but we knew who who each other were. So he looks over and he's like, hey, Tech Tim. I look at him and, oh, hey, David Johnson. Then it turned out our flight got delayed. We were we were on the same flight, and the flight got delayed. So we're sitting there in the in the airport, and we're just chatting. And I had my laptop out because I was editing an article for the Toyota magazine. And you know, he kind of asked me what I what I was doing, and I told him. And he says, "Well, hey, I've got a studio at Northridge that's being unused. Would you have any interest in coming and working for me?" You know, I, I met Dave when he was running the business out of his dad's garage. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just, I'm just coming off of shutting down my business a couple years prior. Nothing's ever a failure because you always learn from it. But to me, you know, it was a dismal failure. Um, I, helped, I helped a lot of people, had a lot of fun. But in the end, I didn't make, you know, I, it wasn't financially successful, which all businesses, you know, that's the goal. Anyway, so I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you have a studio. Wait, you're working out of your dad's garage. <laughs> And he's, he's like, uh, we've grown a little bit yeah. and, you know, now to come to find out that, you know, they have this huge, you know, big building warehouses, warehouses across the United States. Cause they're all tied in with the APG group. And so that was SEMA coming home from SEMA. And by February, I started the first week, second week of February at Northridge four by four to, it was originally to do video but I didn't know enough about video. Um, I'd shot a bunch of video, and, but editing was definitely my weak point. But I, I basically took over their blog site and then just started doing how-to articles on their blog site. And that immediately you know, translated into sales of products and, and, um, and traffic to our site, which of course eventually leads to sales to product. That went on for a couple years. And then they got an intern in for a couple months who was just to get their video department up and rolling. And next thing I know, I find myself doing, I would help, she would help me do a, do an art, basically be a hand model for holding parts and stuff as I'm shooting an install uh, article for the blog. 
And then I helped her do a video. And I was basically doing the install of a, uh, I think our very first video we did was um, a cold air kit on a jail. Then it just kind of snowballed from there. And so that's what I do most of the time now is we're, we pump out a video a week, video every other week. I'm right in there. And then it's pretty much how to. So if you want to see parts for your JL, a JT, or even the new Bronco, you can head over to Northridge Nation on YouTube and you'll get to see my ugly mug showing people how to install parts onto the newer vehicles. And then I also take care of our all our forums. So we do like JL Wrangler forums, the Gladiator forums, the Bronco forums. And I'm on there helping people out and, you know, um, questions on various products and, you know, posting up uh, here. We happen to have this sale or that sale. Um, I do a little bit of our social media, a little bit of Facebook, things like that. And that's where I'm currently at. And I love it. Another, another, even though we're a very big corporation, um, another place that feels family-like. The people are really good. A lot of the people there have worked there for many years and they're just, it's just a great, great people to work with and a great atmosphere. That's what Steven said. Yeah. Hey, and, and I get, there's, there's somebody, um, you know, I hired him back into the tech department back in the ARB days and we got to be friends. Uh, That's, you know, like you talk about having friends, meeting people. Um, I had to, I would have this guy call me up on the ARB tech line and instead of telling me how his grandmother broke his airlock or backing up in the Seven Eleven parking lot, he's telling me stories like, dude, I sailed off the lip of this sand dune, man. I went, I was higher and I went farther than I ever went. And when I landed, everything just went boom and parts went <laughs> flying. And so he'd send his airlocker in and I wanted to see it break because I wanted to see catastrophic failure. I wanted to see, you know, what really tears these things apart. And so I would, I would fix his airlocker for free. It doesn't matter that he admitted it. I'd fix, I'd fix or replace his airlocker for free because he was straight up about it. You know, he was, he wasn't, it was amazing how many people would try to deflect when they call in and say that they have a problem. You know, it's always, it's all, it's always your, your product's fault. Not that I'm running 35s on a Dana 35 that's bent. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so I got to be really good friends with this fellow and, and he became a, a very well-known photographer and videographer, um, photographer for the Detroit Lions for years. And I hooked Steven up with him, and that's how Steven got to uh, shooting for the Seahawks. Right. And, you know, but again, friendships. You meet all these people through the industry, and everybody's always helping out. You've you've helped me out, you know, meeting different people and getting my foot in the door in various places, as has so many other people. It's just a great industry. I mean, it's definitely changed over the last 10 years. Um, Yeah. Definitely way more corporate, way more monetized, if you want to call it that. Yeah, it has. And some of that is the, the new marketing people that come in that only understand digital. Yeah. Everything's got to be digital. They don't understand that people want something in their hands. Yep. Yeah, but they're coming back around. 
I mean, last yes, la- last time I was at SEMA, um, you know, not only was I working for Northridge 4x4, but I was also hitting up some of my contacts that I normally dealt with for the magazines. And it was amazing because two years prior, everything was all about social media. Yet right. that last SEMA I'd been to, and I haven't been to the last three because of the whole COVID thing. Um, uh, the last one I went to, people were then, oh, you, you write for a magazine. Oh, and I was getting the same response that I'd gotten 10 years prior. Well, I think people were surprised that there's still magazines out there, but you know, we're Herrick and us are not going to, uh, not going to give up on that. Yeah. And you know, as, as, as much as, uh, people love to, you know, drag an iPad into the little boys room with them, um, you know, magazines still have their place because it's, it's, it's in your hand. It's a tangible, tangible, um, item in, you know, you still, uh, although I got to say, even I don't read magazines as much as I used to. And you know, I had a huge magazine collection. Right. Because now, honestly, you can look everything up on the internet, but it still doesn't have that feel. No. So what's next for Tim? What, what's next for you guys? Uh, that's a hell of a good question. <laughs> you just got done doing a, a bicycle thing with your son. Yes. Mountain bikes. Yep. So that was, so we got Dallas into riding bikes when he was, he was riding a bicycle, no training wheels by the time he was four. Okay. And he loved it. He loved riding bikes and, uh, all throughout high school, all throughout middle school, high school, I just, that's when I'd started wild west. So he was working for me. He learned solid works. He learned how to weld. He learned how to wrench. He was doing a lot of stuff like we even had an article series in the Toyota magazine where it was a, a he had an 84 forerunner and I had an 86 forerunner and it was live axle versus solid axle. I mean, live axle versus independent. And we built them up identically. Both had doublers, both had air lockers, of course, um, the same tires, everything. And then we'd go out and we'd wheel them side by side. And, you know, what are pros and cons of a live axle versus independent for a trail vehicle? Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's been hashed out many times on the podcast, you know, the big difference in competition, but trail wheeling is very different than competition. True. And of course it depends on the trails. I know there's going to be guys out there. Oh, geez, I wheel harder than any of those racers would ever think. And it's like, okay, great. You're not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the normal trail wheelers. Right. And, uh, there's huge benefits for independent on a, on a, on a regular trail rig. And one of the things is you don't get beat up as much. You can, you can just cruise through a trail. Um, you know, the nuisance stuff is just, you don't even notice it anymore. All those baseball sized rocks, you just roll over them. (laughs) So that got my son really into, um, the four wheel drive world was he'd, he'd go to school all day and then come home and work for me, work in wild west for the afternoon and the, and the evening. And then when he went off to when he went off to college, and he'd always wanted to be a mechanical engineer since he was about seven or eight years old, he got involved in that whole Baja uh, SAE Baja thing where they build the little tiny Baja rigs um, with a yep. lawnmower engine, and that was a full chromoly tube chassis with an independent suspension that he had designed in SolidWorks. I mean, when he when he took his first SolidWorks class in college, he knew more than the professor because he'd worked for me at wild west 
And um, he, he ended up being the teacher's aide and answering questions that the teacher couldn't answer. The professor couldn't answer. <laughs> That's um, awesome. And, it, and then his very second independent suspension he developed was Jason Shear's first independent car. And then, you know, it's just, it's just steamrolled from there. He had, you know, he had, he had bikes in high school and stuff, but he really got into the whole four wheel drive scene. Well, once he got to college, he, and he was living in Portland, Oregon, he found out that running around Portland on a bicycle was much easier than driving and finding parking and all that. And then he got into mountain biking and then he decided to do a hundred mile race. It's around Mount Bachelors, a hundred mile mountain bike race in one day. And so he asked if Debbie and I had come down and pit for him. We had to meet him at like the 20 mile pit, the 40 mile pit and the 80 mile pit, something along those lines. And I'm sitting there. I, you know, I, I rode BMX bikes all throughout, you know, my younger life. And here I am watching these guys older than me competing in a hundred mile race. Well, of course that meant that within a couple months I had a very high end mountain bike sitting there <laughs> and I started riding and I was training for that race. It was him and I were going to go do that race together. And then he ended up, he works for Nike. He's an engineer for Nike and he flies all over and all over the world. And he ended up not being able to do the race. They had him on a trip someplace um, when that hundred mile race was coming around again. And next thing you know, it's like, okay, well, instead of racing, let's just go do a tour. And so we were going to go do this tour across the highlands and the islands of Scotland. And given my, my mom's side was all Highlander Scott and given, given that side and me wearing the kilts forever. Yeah, sure. I'll go to Scotland with you. Heck yeah, let's go. Right. Well, that was 2020 when we were going to do that. 2019, I think 2020 is when they, it was something that him and Debbie were working on. They were going to surprise me with it. Well, they surprised me. And then it's like, okay, great. Let's do this. So I really got into mountain biking seriously. Um, then all of a sudden COVID hit. And you can't travel anywhere. Uh, they were even shutting down. They put, you know, ribbons and, and blockades across our, our local trail. I have a huge trail system, just about five, six miles from my house. And, you know, there's, you know, nobody allowed, nobody allowed because they didn't. Yeah, because outdoors where you're all separated by your six feet anyway, you can't do anything. Gosh. Gosh. Well, when they finally let us back on the trails, you wouldn't, well, you probably would believe the stuff that I saw. It was incredible. You know, you're, you're, there's, it's, it's basically, it was all holdings from a timber company. And then the, between the county park system and the local mountain bike association, they purchased this land, made it a county park, and then put all these mountain bike trails in between the logging roads. And so, you know, you do a mountain bike trail, and then you're back on the logging road down to the next trail. And one time I'm riding a bike in between on the logging roads, and whenever I'd see people, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wear a mask or anything like that because you're out there breathing heavy and all that. I'm, I'm just, but I'll, I'll stay on the far side of the road. You know, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable, blah, blah, blah. And here's this lady walking down the, down the side of the logging road with her kid. And the kid was pretty small. I have no idea what age, but just size wise. And she sees me and sees I don't have a mask on. And she, she grabs her kid's arm and yanks the kid right up against her and then swings her coat over the top of the kid's head 
while I pass. She goes total Karen on you. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm thinking of my, you know, of course I just feel sorry for the kid. What's that doing to the kid's psyche? Yep. But we should leave all that out of the. <laughs> no, we might not. I don't know. Anyway, so we, it just, COVID rolled on and I continue to ride, but not, not religiously. And it's like anything, if you're doing an endurance sport, you have to be out there all the time. And, you know, 2020, you couldn't go to, you couldn't go to the UK comes around 2021. You couldn't go to the UK. And so 2022 comes in and you still can't go to the UK. And I'm just like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to take a break. So I was actually off the bike for a number of months. And then all of a sudden, oh boy, April-ish, May, all of a sudden the UK opens. You, you can go there. And, and you know what? I, I actually have to say you could go there if you're unvaccinated. So that's, that was the big key for me. Boom, all of a sudden, okay, we're going to go, and we better go do it now before they close it down again. And so I had like three months to train, and it was on the bike. Well, you and I talked a couple times of bounce texts. I mean, I was literally on the bike four or five days a week doing, you know, 10-mile days, 20-mile days, 30-mile days. I think one day I talked to you. I I just finished like a 42-mile day. Yep. And, you know, it's no big deal on the, well, I shouldn't say it's no big deal. It's, it's a lot easier if you're a road biker as opposed to a mountain biker for 40 miles on a mountain bike is tough. And, um, this particular group we went with the, the tour we were on was listed as a advanced and you better be used to climbing. And it was like the first day was going to be nine to 12 miles. Second day was 20 miles, third day, 25 miles. And then like a couple 12 mile days. And then a, then a big day, like a 25 mile day. And so that's what I trained for. Right. We show up in Scotland and we toured Dallas and I toured all over, had a lot of fun. And then we show up for this, this mountain bike tour. And on the very first day, we get out there and well, it's a checkout day. They want to see what your skill level is and how, how into shape everybody is. And, you know, we're going to do nine to 12 miles is what they said. Yeah, we did 30. <laughs> oh, you guys are doing so great. Let's just keep going. Let's go hit another trail. Let's go hit another trail. And the next day was 25 and the next day was 25. And then we did, a, then we did an easy 12 mile day, but it was the hardest 12 miles I'd ever done. <laughs> and then next day was another 12 mile day and that was even harder than the one before <laughs> and at that point in time that's when i broke um i i took the next day off day five broke me day six broke everybody else <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that was that was phenomenal um, so after that tour are you still on a bike I haven't been on it much because we got back and then we had all the smoke from the wildfires and everything. That oh, yes. you, you, you don't go ride in that stuff. No. Um, so, but we're going to get back on it. Um, it sounds like Dallas is going to go do that hundred mile trip. Uh, the high cascades 100, I think is what it's called. And last time he did it in 14 hours. So think about that hundred wow. miles in 14 hours at, in down in Bend, Oregon, around the Mount Bachelor. That's crazy. He's he said he thinks he pushes bike probably about I think he said about twenty miles of that hundred miles. 
<laughs> just just be up up the hills and stuff because some of right. it was so brutal. Anyway, so yeah, I need to get back on the bike and start training if I'm going to go do that race with him. Well, cool. Well, you know, Tim, I think we've touched on a lot of a lot of bases today. Yeah. Wow. Two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I want to say thank you so much for uh, for coming on and sharing your life and uh, you know your history. And all your stories. They were great. Well, thanks for the time or thanks for you putting the time and effort into it. Um, again, I'm still kind of shocked that you wanted to talk with me after, you know, listening to a lot of the other people that you've done. Those are the people I'm proud to say I'm friends with because of all they've done. And a lot of times I think what I've done and it pales in comparison to some of them. No. And it, and it's still, and it, and that may be the case with some of them, but it also, it also, you have what a lot of people aspire to have. Oh. Okay. You have those, that experiences and those associations and stuff with a lot of our listeners would hope to one day be able to do. Well, and so I, I've always said I'm lucky. I, I, sometimes I think I'm one of the luckiest individuals in the four wheel drive industry, just because of all the opportunities that I've had and all the people that I've got to know and all the information I've learned and all the people I've been able to help. I, it's, yep. it's been phenomenal. So yeah, I probably go down to say that I'm the, definitely the the luckiest person I've ever met in the four wheel drive industry, just because of all the various things I've been able to do. Excellent. With that, I'd like to say thank you and we will talk some more. All right. Thanks, Rich. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.